Chapter 23 of The Great Sinners of the Bible. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Wayne Cook. The Great Sinners of the Bible by Lewis Albert Banks. The Difference Between Self-Conceit and Self-Respect. Seest thou a man wise in his own conceit? There is more hope of a fool than of him. Proverbs 26.12 Should such a man as I flee? And who is there that, being as I am, would go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. Nehemiah 6.11 Between self-conceit and self-respect, there is in reality a great gulf fixed. But the chasm is not always discerned, and the two are often confused in the mind and are sometimes taken the one for the other. Paul undertakes to distinguish between them in a careful way in the twelfth chapter of his letter to the Romans, where he says, For I say, through the grace given unto me, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. And from that, Paul sets out to show that we have, every one of us, our own rightful place to work in the world, and our own important work. That there is no reason for our envying anybody else, and no cause for anyone to think of our place or talents with contempt. The fatal folly and sin of self-conceit lies in the fact that the conceited man expects to win on the principle of his own shrewdness or cunning or lucky star, instead of earning fairly and squarely his success by living a righteous life and giving an honest return in labor for the reward he expects. He thinks that somehow or other he is going to escape that great law of God which girdles the earth as completely as the law of gravitation, and which says, God is not mocked, for whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. But the self-conceited man thinks that it is possible for him to cheat God, and, though he sow wild oats, reap a useful crop into the garner of old age. He will admit that other men have tried to do the same thing and come out bankrupt and impoverished in every way. But his self-conceit causes him to believe that he will be able to do what others have always failed to do, to live a life of sin and yet in some way obtain the wages of righteousness. No wonder the wise man said of such an illogical and unreasonable creature, Seest thou a man wise in his own conceit? There is more hope of a fool than of him. In the great cities, where young men gathered from all the little towns and villages throughout the country congregate by the thousand, self-conceit works its awful ravage of destruction. Here is a young man who has just come to town from his village home with a curiosity to see the sights, and with a large idea of his own ability to take care of himself under all circumstances. And he is able to take care of himself, until he begins to thrust himself into the ways of folly. 
the bird is able to take care of itself so long as it keeps out of the trap, and the writer of Proverbs says that it is in vain to set a trap in the open sight of a bird. But a self-conceited man will see the trap set and know that it is a trap in which other men are constantly being caught and plucked of everything of value, and yet will walk straight on to his destruction. This young man has heard about gambling houses in the city. He has heard, of course, that they are dangerous places, where it is the rule and not the exception for men to come to disgrace and sorrow. But he thinks that these young men that have been caught were not so sharp as he is, and so, like the green goose that he is, he goes into the gambling saloon. He has been warned against it by his father and mother and by wise friends, and yet so enormous is his self-conceit that he goes into the trap to pit himself against an old, trained gambler who is a match for five hundred such young men as he is. Anybody that has been behind the scene knows that with all his experience, with all his craft, with all his secret arrangements, with all his organized knavery, it is impossible for anybody from the outside to make head against him. As Mr. Beecher once said, a man may have some chance in a game of chance, but in gambling saloons, chances are not allowed. A man who gambles for a living is nothing but an incarnate thief, a cunning thief, a perpetual thief, first, last, and all the time, a thief, and his business is to steal. He has made stealing a profession, and is practiced in it. He is acquainted with men's dispositions, and knows how to take them. And here comes in this green young man. He is exactly like a little fly exploring a great big black-bellied spider's web that says, It does not look as though there was very much to be afraid of here. I do not see anything that I cannot manage at any rate. I will try, and pitches in. And after he is once in, you hear one faint buzz, and that is the end of him. Here is another young fellow, with a little rotten spot of self-indulgence in him, who thinks that because he is away from home, where his mother will not know and her sisters are not likely to hear about it, he can afford to glut his idle curiosity, or give vent to his evil passion in the dark places of the city that have held for him an unholy fascination. He has heard about other men being ruined there, but his overweening self-conceit bolsters him up and makes him believe that he can go and come out whole, where others have lost their manhood and their lives. And so he goes to the brothel and is flattered and intoxicated by drugged wines and drugged pleasures until the dart strikes through his liver. Poor fool, to think that he could handle pitch and not be defiled. When it is too late, he wakes up to know that God's word is true when it says, The lips of a strange woman drop as an honeycomb, and her mouth is smoother than oil. And that the other part of the warning is also true, that the end of her career is bitter as wormwood, and that her feet go down to death, her steps take hold on hell. If the self-conceited and deluded youth who is beginning to go in that dark way could only have wisdom to see, 
the ghastly skeletons, the pallid cheeks, the leaden eyes, the rotting bones, the consuming marrow, the hideous outcome of such a life. But ten thousand men perish because they deem themselves so smart, because they are confident that, however many may have perished, they are not going to perish. Seest thou a man wise in his own conceit? There is more hope of a fool than of him. Here is another young man, brought upon the farm to drink cold water, eat plain and simple food, and shun strong drink. He has heard of the sting of the adder, the danger of drunkenness, and all that. But now that he is away from home influences, he finds himself surrounded by people who sneer at those safe and quiet ways of life in which he has hitherto walked. And so he begins to reason that men have come to be drunkards because they were weak and had not much willpower. The young man's self-conceit causes him to boast that he himself has an iron will and that he can always stop drinking when he wants to. And so he begins with the wine cup and the taste grows until it becomes his master and ruins him body and soul. Other men look on and see him ruined and walk straight into the trap themselves, with their eyes open, because their bloated self-conceit flatters them that they are a little stronger than he was. Seest thou a man wise in his own conceit? There is more hope of a fool than of him. Now, Self-respect is a very different thing. Nehemiah, who uttered this second text, was a man who had genuine self-respect. Nehemiah had had a good place in the palace of the king of Persia and was a great favorite of the king. If he had been a selfish man, he would have settled himself down there and feathered his own nest and given himself no trouble about the sad condition of his native city. But Nehemiah was an unselfish and noble soul. It was impossible for him to be happy while, though living in a palace, he knew that his relatives and friends were in trouble and that the walls of his native city had been torn down. And so he betook himself to prayer and prayed most earnestly that God would in some way open the way for him to help in bringing prosperity again to his people. The next day, when he came into the presence of the king, the monarch at once detected the sorrow that was mirrored in the sensitive face of the young man. He saw that some trouble was gnawing at his heart and required of him an explanation. The king became interested in his story and sent him away to restore the walls of Jerusalem and build up again the prosperity of his people. Nehemiah returned to a discouraged and disappointed people but his own faith in God was so strong and his own magnetic personality so irresistible that he soon put new heart into them and had them all at work rebuilding the broken wall. So great was his success that the enemies of his people saw that the Hebrews would soon be independent from them unless Nehemiah could in some way be frightened from his great work. At first they wanted him to come and have a council with them, but Nehemiah sent them word, saying, I am doing a great work, so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and come down to you? 
They tried four times to get him off with them into some sort of council where they would have a chance to fall upon him and kill him. But Nehemiah steadfastly went on with his work. Then they undertook to scare him. They told him that there was a lot of evil gossip going about, to the effect that he was planning treachery and rebellion, thinking in this way to frighten the brave young leader and dishearten him in his work. They did not frighten him, but they did succeed in alarming some of his friends, and one of them said to him, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple, and let us shut the doors of the temple, for they will come to slay thee, yea, in the night will they come to slay thee. Should such a man as I flee? shouted Nehemiah. Who is there that, being as I am, would go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. It turned out that this was a false friend who had been hired by Nehemiah's enemies to entice him, if possible, to show cowardice by hiding in the temple. Nehemiah's self-respect was not founded on any self-conceit or any overgrown idea of his own strength or greatness. It was built on the solid rock of his belief that God had called him to do a great work, and that because of that his life was dear to God, and it was his place to go on doing the work given him, leaving himself in the Lord's hands. That is the foundation of all true self-respect. No man can really respect himself unless he feels that he is doing right, that his life is justified in God's sight, and that he is doing the noble work which God would have him do. To make a man feel that he is fulfilling his mission is to dignify him with a noble and royal self-respect. Just where you stand in the conflict, there is your place. Just where you think you are useless, Hide not your face. God placed you there for a purpose, whate'er it be. Think he has chosen you for it. Work loyally. Gird on your armor, be faithful at toil or rest. Whiche'er it be, never doubting, God's way is best. Out in the fight, or on the picket, stand firm and true. This is the work which your master gives you to do. To give your heart to Christ and become a Christian cannot help but give you a more wholesome self-respect. The fact that Christ loves you, that he has chosen you for his friend, and that he daily holds communion with your heart will make you feel differently about yourself. A lady prominent in society in an eastern city wears a ring which has a very romantic history. It is an old-fashioned ring containing a lock of faded brown hair covered by a glass setting. Nearly forty years ago, the white-haired lady who now wears the ring cut that tress of hair from her own curls and gave it to a jeweler to be enclosed in a ring which she gave to her soldier lover when he was setting out for the war. It can be imagined how he prized this memento of the girl he loved. Through many a weary month, in many a sad scene, it remained on the finger on which she had placed it. One day, after one of the fierce battles of the wilderness, the young officer was carried, wounded, to the field hospital. He was insensible, but the surgeon saw that there was life in him and thought it might be preserved by amputating his arm. There was no time to be lost, and they cut through the sleeve and, having done their work, 
set the limb away with the sleeve and gauntlet still on it. A friend was beside his bed when the young officer recovered his senses and gently told him what had been done. His first thought was of his treasured ring. It was dearer to him than the lost hand. His friend went and found the arm, removed the gauntlet, and saw the ring, which he took back to the sufferer. It was put on the only hand he had left, and his mind was relieved. This is the ring that his wife now wears. To her it is endeared by the affection in which her husband held it for her sake. Its intrinsic value is probably small, but as the symbol of a love which manifested itself in that trying hour, it is precious beyond price. It is such a love that gives Christ a claim on his followers. Having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. No good woman could be loved like that by a noble man without an increased self-respect without feeling dignified and ennobled by such love. So Christ ennobles and dignifies and glorifies us by the great love wherewith he loves us. End of chapter 23